This is an ABC podcast. Eventually, the strongman model will fall because it's it's very flawed, because it puts too much authority in the hands of an individual, that the longer these people are in power, the more likely they are to become megalomaniacs, paranoid, to make terrible mistakes. And I think we're seeing that process unfolding with Putin right now. That's the prominent British commentator Gideon Ruckman on the age of autocrats. Hello there, this is Tom Switzer from Radio National. Welcome to another episode of Between the Lines. Stay tuned for my chat with Gideon Ruckman from the Financial Times. But first, the federal election. Well, only a fortnight ago, there was widespread gloom and despondency in federal government circles. Many coalition MPs, having been in the majority for the past nine years, well, they were preparing for political oblivion. Scott Morrison's prospects, they'd been written off and his leadership regarded as damaged goods. Yet such is the magic of politics, here we are a month before the federal election and the Prime Minister, well, he could win another miracle election. Why? How has the race narrowed so quickly? Or are Labor and Anthony Albanese still the firm favourites to win on May 21? Well, we have a terrific panel. Jacqueline Maley is a columnist with The Age in Melbourne and the Sydney Morning Herald. Hi there, Jacqueline. Welcome back to Between the Lines. Hi, Tom. Thank you for having me. Our pleasure. And Chris Kenny hosts a nightly show on Sky News and he's a columnist with The Australian Newspaper. He's a former senior advisor to both Malcolm Turnbull and Alexander Downer. Chris, welcome back to the ABC. Yeah, good to be back, Tom. Hello, Jacqueline. Now, first, the verdict on the leaders' debate this week. Chris, whom do you think came out on top, Morrison or Albanese? Yeah, look, I think, Tom, a lot of people look at these things as for a winner and a loser. I think it's a little bit more nuanced than that. Mm. I mean, obviously, they're both competent performers. That's why they get to lead major parties. So the event itself was interesting enough. The questions from the audience were fascinating. But I think what I look for is what it's going to do to the political debate. And what I saw were two issues that are going to feed into the debate today, tomorrow and every week through to polling day. And that is border protection, another mistake from Anthony Albanese about border protection policy and history and the way forward. And also an uptick in the rhetoric and the debate on China. Scott Morrison deliberately, I think, went hard on China. We're expecting aggression from Anthony Albanese on a number of issues, but it was Scott Morrison who went hard on China, saying that Labor takes the China side on the debate over the Solomons. And I think uh, we're going to see that debate, uh, the issue of uh, national security and standing up to China, be elevated from this point right through to election day. We'll deal with borders first. The leaders were questioned over their respective scare campaigns. Now, Morrison claims that boat arrivals would return under Labor as they did under Rudd and Gillard. Jacqueline, from what you can tell, is that a fair point? No, in the, I don't think Scott Morrison can predict the future in the, any more than any, any of us can. And it's a completely unprovable um, sort of hypothesis anyway. But, um, look, it's obvious that, um, that, you know, Anthony Albanese has stumbled a few times on border protection, that Labor historically has never been as, I don't know if you call it strong, some people would call it harsh on border protection um, 
that Labor has. You always have a sense with Labor governments that they, if, even if they're sort of implementing what are essentially coalition policies, they're doing it a little bit with their nose um, held. So any time that Anthony Albanese slips up on this, it gives Scott Morrison a really good opportunity to engage on the issue. And even though it's kind of not really an issue, I mean, you know, the votes have stopped, um, the government's been quietly sort of um, releasing refugees who've been in detention sometimes for sort of up to eight years. But it's really solid ground for Morrison, so there's every reason that he wants to grab on to whatever mistakes he can find and whatever footholds he can find in, in Labor policy. Chris Kenny. Yeah, well, I think uh, this is a very, very potent issue because I think you could be the the most pro-immigration, pro-refugee, bleeding heart uh, uh, liberal who uh, wants to open the borders, or you could be the most flint-hearted, anti-immigration, selfish person who wants never to see any more immigrants into this country. And uh, right across that spectrum, none of us want to see the disasters we've seen before unfold again. 50,000 people in detention, at least 1,200 people dying uh, offshore, and of course so many people stuck offshore in detention for years. So no one wants it to happen. Again, And the problem is we've seen it all before. Back in 2007, the boats had stopped. People were out of detention. Everyone said the crisis was over. Labor said uh, they would come back in and turn back the boats. They never did. They got rid of temporary protection visas, got rid of offshore processing, and we know what unfolded. So this is the trouble. I think we have to absolutely be vigilant on this because no one wants to see that humanitarian and national security disaster unfold again. And it will, because the the lure, the incentive to get to Australia is understandable and it will always be there. So I think Labor just hasn't learned the lessons. They've got to just say that the Operation Sovereign Borders, temporary protection visas, offshore processing and turning back boats all works. It's all intrinsic to the success of the policy and we will adopt it. Even then, people would have trouble believing them that they would do it with the, the strength of character and diligence that's required. But at least that's what they should say. Yet instead, they're saying, oh, well, we won't have two TPVs and they're umming and ahhing about what their own policy actually is. So I think it's quite disastrous for Anthony Albanese's campaign, but I do actually think it's one that most Australians are concerned about. We don't want that unfolding again. Okay, but what about the coalition weaknesses over China's expansion into the Pacific? Now, Labor says this new security pact between Beijing and the Solomon Islands, that constitutes, these are Penny Wong's words, quote, the worst failure of Australian foreign policy in the Pacific in almost 80 years. Jacqueline Maley. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I, that's very strong rhetoric. I, I keep thinking about, um, you know, the sort of hypo, a different hypothetical, which is if Tony Abbott, um, for example, was the opposition leader and this had happened under a Labor government. And I, I think in, in that sense, it's almost as if Labor's being a bit timid on attacking the government on this. It's quite extraordinary that, you know, the jewel in the crown of Scott Morrison's um, foreign policy agenda really was the Pacific step up. He just talked about it a lot. And I don't, I'm not a foreign policy expert. I don't know exactly, I couldn't tell you exactly what the, you know, exactly printed objectives of, of the Pacific step up program are. But I'm pretty sure that allowing, you know, China to possibly establish a military base um, in one of our closest Pacific neighbours would be 
something that you didn't want to happen under that policy and it's happened under his watch and it's happened under that policy, which was supposed to prevent this very outcome. So it's a, it is a disaster. I mean, you can't look at it any other way. You could probably say that it might have happened um, even if the Labor government was in power, um, but uh, there's no way of proving that. And, um, yeah, I mean, it's disastrous. It's absolutely, it's absolutely terrible. It's terrifying. And it, it's amazing that Scott Morrison is still able to sort of say, um, you know, claim the sort of border protection, national security dominance or superiority now that this has happened. For a coalition government that strongly supports its anti-China credentials, Chris Kenny, surely this Solomon's Pact is a bit of a disaster, politically speaking. Well, I think it's a disaster for our foreign policy, not just for Australia, it's for New Zealand's, for most of the South Pacific, for the US, for Britain, for France, for all the countries interested in the South Pacific. But I think Labor risks overstating it by saying it's the worst disaster in this foreign policy area since the Second World War. I mean, we've had French nuclear testing in the Pacific. We've had the Rainbow Warriors sunk. We've had a civil war in Bougainville. In fact, Australia's had to go to Solomon's for an intervention there to prevent what effectively was a civil war. We've had a series of uh, coups in Fiji. When I worked for Foreign Minister Alexander Downer, we went to Fiji and met with the police commissioner, then uh, Frank Barney Marana, the, the, the head of the army, sorry, and uh, we were pleading with him not not to institute a coup because, of course, our intelligence said he would. It didn't stop him. You can't stop foreign governments, sovereign governments, from acting on their own free will. So in the end, you have to question, could a, could Australia have prevented the Solomons doing this? You don't know. I always thought we pulled out too fully from Solomon Islands after the Ramsey intervention. I think having stabilised the country, we should have done some sort of a deal with Solomons to maintain our presence there. Maybe that would have worked. But so obviously the government has to wear some responsibility, but for Labor to suggest that it's Australia's fault that a sovereign nation does a deal with China is really overstretching it, given that Labor's own state government of Victoria did a Belt and Road initiative with Beijing. I mean, they couldn't even stop that. So uh, it, it's, a, it's a difficult issue, this one. It's going to play out in the election campaign, but of course it's more, like, like the border one, it's more substantial than that. It matters to this country in the medium to long term. And uh, no doubt uh, Australia, the US and those other Pacific Island nations, the Pacific Island Forum, uh, will be working hard to try and get this overturned. My guests are Chris Kenny from Sky News and The Australian and Jacqueline Maley from The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald. Now, all the available public opinion polling shows that both Labor and the Coalition, they're struggling to win enough primary support to take power in their own right. Jacqueline, how do you account for Labor's poor primary vote? Yeah, it's dropped off a bit too. I mean, I, I, I guess both major parties, um, I, I don't know if there is that much science to it. I think it's obvious from the polling that both major parties are struggling to attract um, reasonable primary votes because they're failing to inspire people. I think um, this is where the independents are sort of very much serving a market that's grown up um, and, you know, other minor parties, including sort of more fringe parties like One Nation and Clive Palmer's UAP, it's pretty evident that um, there's just a really, it's a really soft vote. There's like, you know, a, almost a full 30% of voters who just don't really have a strong inclination to vote for either of the major parties. So I guess it's a failure of imagination, a failure of vision, and perhaps it also goes to integrity, sort of trust issues where 
people sort of think they're all the same as the as the other. Um, you know, a pox on all their houses. I'll vote yes. for an well, outsider candidate. Well, the coalition primary vote that remains very low, as you say, Jacqueline. Chris, are the libs leading on the left or the right or both? Look, it's not. It's on the right. I broadly agree with what Jacqueline's saying, although I think most of the fault here, most of the problem lays on the right of politics. That's where the primary vote is disappearing from. That's where the breakaway parties are happening now. In the past, of course, we saw that with the establishment of the Greens. So you have Labor and the Greens as a block. But I think because the Liberal Party, the Coalition, have abandoned some some key conservative areas and in policy areas I'm talking about, you've seen the formation of the Liberal Democrats, the United Australia Party, One Nation, and you, and that's where you're losing a lot of votes. So I think that's been exacerbated in recent times because... Jacqueline Mayley. Sorry, sorry to interrupt, but that, that they do attract such a small percentage of the vote. I mean, the UAP and One Nation put together are something very small, like 5 or 6%, I think. Like, they're not comparable to the Greens in that sense. If you that, put those 5 sorry. or 6 points together, that's, that's the... Uh, the primary vote that the the coalition is missing. Add five or six points to their primary vote and they're suddenly over 40% and in a commanding electoral um, uh, position. And, and the trouble is they've exacerbated all this by going for net zero, uh, not uh, pushing hard on uh, back against some of the overreach when it comes to pandemic management and not talking about sort of absenting themselves from the culture wars, if you like, on the national curriculum and other issues. Yeah, Margaret Thatcher advised that in politics, quote, standing in the middle of the road is very dangerous. You get knocked down by the traffic from both sides. And Chris, if I hear you correctly, that's the lesson that's going to be delivered to Scott Morrison for (laughs) placing the coalition in the mushy middle. But hasn't he, following on from Jacqueline's point, hasn't he also lost votes on his left, especially in those erstwhile safe liberal metropolitan electorates in Sydney and Melbourne. Chris Kenny. Well, I think that's the common perception, but I I think what you're seeing there is a leftist push under a different banner. Labor runs dead. The Greens don't run in there. They come up with these voices of so-called independence. Really, it's a new party. And they're trying to encapsulate all of that disaffection and run it against the Liberals in what should be safe seats. I would argue, they've never tried this, but I would argue if they went stronger on energy security and sensible climate policies, and if they went stronger on issues like education and foreign policy and border protection, that they wouldn't be in trouble in those seats. Exactly as you say, Margaret Thatcher had it right. You've actually got to stand your ground. And uh, they've decided that, you know, shooting for the middle for the coalition is moving to the left, and that's not where mainstream okay, Australia now is. Okay, now some some people might say that Morrison is shoring up his conservative base via Catherine Deeve. She's the Liberal candidate for Warringah in Sydney. She may well lose that seat, or not win it at least, against Zali Stegall, who beat uh, Tony Abbott in 2019. Now, her commentary about transgender athletes, now that continues to cause headaches for the coalition, but Jacqueline could they appeal to the coalition base and indeed the broader electorate? Jacqueline. Uh, yes, it's a, it's a short answer to the last bit of your question. I mean, I, for the record, I think the comments that she's made on Twitter are abhorrent and deeply ideological. And as someone who identifies as a feminist, I can say that, you know, um, I think she's using sort of women's rights or girls' rights in sport as a, as a fig leaf for what are extremely, extreme ideological views. But absolutely, I think on the on the crux of the issue, which is whether or not, you know, apparently we're talking now about this very, very obscure issue that I think most people work out at a community level, but whether or not trans women or trans kids should be able to play sport 
in you know in girls' sporting teams, um, I think probably most people do think like just on a sort of fairness, common sense level. Yeah, that seems a bit off that you know um, people who are born biologically male should be able to compete against born, people who are born biologically female. So yeah, I do think that it it you know the prime minister's done a very good job of um, amplifying the issue. He's done that for a reason. Even before all of the tweets, um, Catherine Deeb's sort of nasty tweets came out, he said very clearly that he backed her position on women's sport and that he would have more to say about it later in the campaign. So he was sort of bookmarking it uh, and saying, you know, this is something that I think is going to be. Um, appealing to the electorate and something that I'm going to talk more about because it'll win me votes. So, yeah, and I mean, I heard him on Ray Hadley today. Ray Hadley was talking about the the issue and women swimming and all of this kind of stuff. Yeah. So, um, and I think I've heard from even you know MPs in pro- quite more progressive electorates. They do that. A lot of people do agree with agree with that particular stance. Well, Chris, how do you think the Catherine Deves controversy plays out nationally? Well, I see it in mirror image terms to Jacqueline, actually. I think this is a woman who's been making uh, advocacy on on a very common sense point, protecting the rights of girls and women in sport. She's been very upfront about that. I've interviewed her on my show about that in uh, in the months and years gone by. And what's happened is when she's been chosen as a candidate, and she's a a, a very um, worthy candidate for that electorate. Suddenly, the, uh, the the trans lobby have targeted her, and there's been a green left media pile on taking various tweets and comments, mostly entirely out of context, and creating a drama about her and trying to demonise her. And they've gone so far as to have some of these so-called moderate liberals, leftist liberals, joining the pile on, and kind of proving her point that if you want to talk common sense about some of these issues you'll get demonised. Uh, she's gone out she's, of her way to say she's not anti, anti-trans. Though, she? Jacqueline Maley. Well, she is. She's saying that girls and, and women should only have to compete against girls and women. They shouldn't have to compete against biological males. That. That's common sense. She's, Jacqueline she's, Maley. She's not saying that. If she was saying that in a common sense and, you know, reasonable way and actually wanted to have a debate about that weird, very obscure issue, which I happen to know, sporting clubs are, you know, and kids sporting teams work out amongst themselves in a civilised fashion. If she wanted to have that debate, she wouldn't have used the inflammatory language she used. She wouldn't have talked about Nazis, the Holocaust, the stolen generation. That's the opposite of sensible. Okay, now where are we heading here? Now, finally, the ALP has won a majority at the federal level only once since the keating Houston election. That was in 1993. Now, they won that in 2007 when Kevin Rudd defeated John Howard. We've got a record high news poll this week that shows that 29% of voters are uncommitted. Does all this mean, Chris Kenny, that that a minority government is more than likely? Look, I've always feared you might end up with a minority government, but uh, I've always thought that the most likely outcome in this election, and I've been saying this for many, many months, despite the polls, is a coalition majority. Um, but you could get a Labor minority government. Um, The polls are ominous uh, for the government, but people tend to underestimate the difficult task for Labor. Labor need to win a lot of seats at quite significant margins to form a majority government. And I just keep coming back to the issues of substance. You've got you've got a, a government that's not popular. You've got uh, an opposition that's not com- compelling. You've got an electorate that's itchy and scratchy because of a couple of years of pandemic and other issues. And uh, and you and so you have this very very high uh, minor party vote, and and anything could happen. But I think as the uh, as the campaign continues, we'll see people harden their choices. The major issues of substance come to the fore. And I think that will play into the coalition's 
coalition's campaign strategy. But uh, it's going to be touch and go, and obviously a hung parliament's going to be a very, very big uh, chance. Heading for a minority government, Jacqueline Maley. Gosh, yeah, it could very well be. I mean, a lot of a lot of credible people I speak to seem to think that's the best. You know, that that, that is what we'll end up with. Um, I hate making predictions, and I won't. I won't do it. I just won't. But um, <laughs> I think, <laughs> um, you know, we we can't forget that Labor has an incredibly difficult task ahead of it because it's got um, a huge number of marginal seats of its own that it has to hang on to and, and protect. And meanwhile, it's got to go after um, seat coalition seats that aren't as marginal as they used to be because Morrison made them much less marginal at the last election. So um, they've got a lot of ground to make up. It's a huge task. So I don't. I just don't think it's a bit – but at the same time, Morrison is, you know, very disliked um, by a large sections of the electorate and the government's tired. I mean, it's an old government. It's been around for nine years. Um, you know, uh, it, it, would, it would be against the odds for them to win another term. But I think you put those things, two things together and maybe you do get a hung parliament. Well, Jacqueline, Chris, a lively exchange, as you'd expect on Radio National. Thanks so much for being on Between the Lines. <laughs> it's a pleasure, Tom. Thank you so much for having me. That was Jacqueline Maley, a columnist with The Age in Melbourne and the Sydney Morning Herald, and Chris Kinney, hosts of The Kenny Report on Sky News, and he writes a regular column for The Australian Newspaper. You're on the ABC's Radio National with me, Tom Switzer. Up next, Gideon Ruckman on the age of the strongman. Well, we all know that the Ukrainian crisis has demonstrated Western unity against Russia. And we all know that Vladimir Putin is the bad guy in this two-month war, right? Well, actually, no, says our next guest. One of the more revealing features of international politics, he warns, is the existence of a Putin cult. You see, there's a significant group of political leaders and influential political figures who, like Putin are strongman nationalists, and their reach is global, spanning Asia, the Middle East, the Americas, and Europe. Gideon Ruckman is author of The Age of the Strongman. It's just out. Gideon's also the chief foreign affairs columnist for the Financial Times, and his regular columns are reprinted every week in the Australian Financial Review. Hello there, Gideon. Welcome back to RN. Thank you very much. Now, before we address your new book, let's start with topical issues. First, the French election on April 24. Has mm-hmm. the Emmanuel Macron-Marie Le Pen race, has that shown that a, a left-right in politics no longer exists? Well, I think one of the interesting things about this election is that although they're very bitter rivals and uh, would regard themselves as kind of polar opposites, They do agree on one thing, which is both Macron and Le Pen say the left-right divide is no longer relevant. Macron says he's not left, not right, that he's a kind of radical centrist. And Le Pen says that uh, left, you know, she rejects the term far right. She says the division is between patriots, as she calls them, and globalists. I guess her opponents would say it's the division between nationalists and liberal internationalists. But they both see the issues that concern French people as no longer sort of classical 
you know, workers versus bosses or higher taxes versus lower taxes, though those issues come up. It's how much do you want to put your faith in the traditional nation state and how much do you uh, kind of commit to international integration and uh, the belief that a lot of the global problems require international cooperation. And that divide mm. is really the one they're debating. And it's the interesting thing is it's, it's quite common across the Western world. I mean, I think that, you know, Trump was America first and lambasted Hillary Clinton um, as, you know, this person who was selling out the United States. I think in the UK, the, the Brexit politics was sort of remade by Brexit. And that was another sort of nation state versus internationalist argument. And that brings us to Viktor Orban's recent election victory in Hungary. Now, you say uh, Orban has rigged the political system in his favour for more than a decade, that the courts have been packed, that the civil service purged, there's been an assault on media freedom. I think this, Gideon, reflects the Western conventional wisdom about Hungary. But Henry Olsen, a past guest on this program, he recently argued in the Washington Post that Orban was re-elected because of his combination of market economics, nationalism, social conservatism, just what a majority of Hungarians want. Gideon Ruckman. Well, I mean, I think it's probably true that the election itself was fair in the sense that they didn't do ballot box stuffing, they didn't rig the vote. But I don't think uh, this was a fair political environment. Just to give you one indicator, the opposition candidate, Peter Markazai, you know how long he got on, on state television uh, during an entire yeah. three-month campaign? Five minutes. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so I wouldn't say that is a sort of free and fair election. Uh, and, and, and equally, you know, I would dispute Olson's view that this is market economics. Uh, you know, it's not a coincidence that some of the richest men in Hungary were school children, schoolmates of Orbán's. You know, that that doesn't happen through the free operation of the market. And uh, it's true there's an ideological clash between the EU and Orbán, but the EU uh, fraud agency, you know, have come up with documented things that they're looking into. For example, the awarding of no-bid contracts to Orbán's son-in-law, um, from EU funds. So that, that that doesn't strike me as a free market system. And, you know, social conservatism, I think, you know, some issues, I think you could you could definitely place Orban on the, the kind of recognisable spectrum in the West. He is very sceptical of things like trans rights. He's very hardline on migration. But also he has, to my mind, definitely flirted with, with anti-Semitism in his characterizations of, of George Soros, for example, as this a man who speculates with money, who who doesn't uh, owe any loyalty to the nation, his argument that there is a Soros plot to destroy Hungary. Uh, I think that's the kind of thing that, that most kind of conservatives that I know would, would or should be. Well, well, how then do you account for the fact that Orban is a favourite of many pro-Trump conservatives in the United States? Well, yeah, you know, I would like to put it down to naivety that they don't know what they're dealing with. Uh, but I, you know, it might be worse than that because after all, I mean, people like Tucker Carlson for Fox News host, who is a huge Orban fan, to, to the extent that he actually moved his show to Budapest, which, you know, Hungary is a country of 10 million. For a whole week. For a whole week, yeah. Um, and he says, you know, Hungary is a model for us and so on. But but also uh, Carlson is, is somebody who's backed Trump's argument that the election was stolen, who hasn't condemned the storming of the Capitol on January the 6th. So if you want it to be, and frankly, I, I think that, that he has a kind of, shall we put it, ambiguous relationship with democracy, so Orban wouldn't bother him. 
You're on ABC's Radio National with me, Tom Switzer, and my guest is Gideon Ruckman, whose new book is called The Age of the Strongman, How the Cult of the Leader Threatens Democracy Around the World. Gideon, we've just talked about Hungary's Orban, just one of the many characters you deal with in your new book. Now, provocative question, with democratic values, frankly, under challenge across the world, does this mean that Putin's strongman style of leadership, could that represent the wave of the future? Well, I hope that the trouble he's running to into in Ukraine makes it less likely to represent the wave of the future. I think it has been the wave for the last 20 years, and it took us a while to recognize it. I think when, when Putin comes in, a lot of the initial commentary about him is uh, that he's just going to be a, a liberal Democrat, that he's going to turn Russia into a, a Western-style democracy. And it takes about a decade for it to sink in that that's not happening. Even then, people like Merkel and Obama uh, treat him slightly condescendingly. Merkel says, you know, he's a 19th century figure who's struggling in the 21st century. In other words, he's a guy out of his time. But I think it becomes apparent that actually there are quite a lot of wannabe Putins out there who share his rejection of liberal democratic values, like his embrace of kind of macho, swagger, militarism, uh, crackdown on the media, or the courts, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, often laced with a strong amount of corruption, um, institutional so, vandalism. I think you call it. Yeah, absolutely. And um, and so you then get a, a bunch of these leaders. Erdogan becomes increasingly Putin-like in Turkey. Uh, Xi Jinping in China is obviously somebody who doesn't come to power in a democracy, but what he does do is similar to Putin in that he creates a personality cult. And I think that that's what's very important to a lot of these strongman leaders is that whatever the starting point of their country's political system, they're all people who say the system should be more about me, you know, and about me as the savior of the country. Uh, Modi in India, actually, I think is a similar figure. Yeah. Now, you say that Putin's been an inspiration to these rogue politicians, and you just mentioned some of their shared characteristics. Intriguingly, you also make the point that many of these political characters Gideon, they were cast early in their careers as moderates. Yeah, uh, I think so. Um, Partly, as I say, I think because, you know, when this era starts, 2000, when Putin comes in rather sort of uncomfortably symbolically on the 31st of December 1999, beginning of the 21st century, um, that is really the heyday of American power. It's before 9-11, Russia's flatlets back, China's economy is still, you know, whatever, 15th of the size of America's. And it really does feel at that point like there is no alternative to the Western way. And so I think we in the West, encouraged by these people's rhetoric, they kind of often use the rhetoric of liberal democracy, tended to think, oh, well, you know, obviously they're going to follow our model because there is no other working model. And so we're very slow to recognize what happens. I mentioned the reception of Putin, but similarly Erdogan, uh, you know, I remember when he was coming to Brussels and everyone was saying, ah, this is the guy who's going to turn Turkey into a modern democracy and show that Islam is reconcilable with democracy. The West put a lot of hope into him. I mean, Obama apparently spoke to him more often than any other foreign leader in his first term in the presidency. And yet he's turned out to be much more like a kind of traditional Ottoman sultan than a, a kind of regular liberal democratic leader. Now, back to Putin, many Westerners, uh, you know, highlight his massive miscalculation in Ukraine. And with Putin floundering, they'd argue that the the age of the strongman may be coming to an end. What's your sense? 
I hope so. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, well, I, I finished the book uh, just before the invasion and I sort of ended it and I wondered whether I was being a bit too optimistic. I said that, <laughs> you know, al- although this has been going on for 20 years, eventually the strongman model will fall because it's it's very flawed because it puts too much authority in the hands of an individual that the longer these people are in power, the more likely they are to become megalomaniacs, paranoid, to make terrible mistakes. And I think we're seeing that process unfolding with Putin right now. Yeah, I was just going to bring this back to Australia, though, because many Australians in recent times, I mean, as you well know, you've written a lot about this in the Financial Times, Gideon. Australia, like much of the West, has had a very close engagement with China, especially since the end of the Cold War. But in recent times, we've grown increasingly anxious about China's rise, and we're especially critical of Xi Jinping, another strongman, and the so-called wolf warrior diplomacy, um, where the you know the Communist Party targets us for not following Beijing's line on our domestic politics. Now you met Xi in 2013, mm. and you record how quote reassuringly technocratic and rational he seemed. Yeah. When when did you get mugged by reality? Well, I would in my defence that was <laughs> I, I was part of a group of people. Uh, including actually your former prime minister, Kevin Rudd and various mm-hmm. uh, past guests on this program. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, Silicon Valley types, the Eric Schmidt from Google, et cetera, et cetera. And were, for some reason, I've been incorporated in this group of Western graduates. <laughs> and um, she was, it was, it was a year in, and he was presenting himself, you know, he was in the best light he could to to a group of Western leaders. And so he was presenting himself as an economic reformer. And that was very much the mood of the group. I was sort of, wasn't convinced either way, but it was very interesting talking to people like Gordon Brown, the former British prime minister, who was very interested in economic reform. And that's what he latched on to. He said, great, you know, she's going to do all these market-based reforms. And what she had to say on the kind of great power stuff was very much, you know, China's never been an aggressor, nothing to worry about here. And then when did we or I get mugged by reality? I think pretty soon afterwards, because by 2014, China's begun to construct military bases across the South China Sea. And I think that is a real turning point uh, when people say, oh, you know, this, whatever they say, this country is an aggressor. Um, Mm. And then it sort of just gets worse from there, because then I think you also see the personality cult kick in, uh, around 2016, 2017, where she incorporates his own thought into the Communist Party constitution. They abolish term limits to allow him to potentially rule for life. And that, incidentally, is, is a classic strongman move. It's what Putin has done in Russia. It's what Erdogan did in Turkey. And it's what Trump joked about doing in the United States, except I'm not sure he was joking. No, and, and we should also stress that many of us, not just yourself, we took a benign view of Narendra Modi when he led the BJP to power in 2014. And you make it very clear in your book that he's also a strongman nationalist. Now, are you overstating your thesis, though, when you say that Boris Johnson, the British Prime Minister, he should be lined up with these uh, with these uh, dictatorial exponents of the leadership cult? Is that an overstatement? You know, I really, I really wrestled with that one because in some ways, obviously, yes. But um, I felt it was important to include him in the book for a couple of reasons. Firstly, I think that the Johnson phenomenon was very closely linked to the Trump phenomenon. Remember, they both happened in 2016. And they were part of this, I think, part of the whole strongman phenomenon. We talked about some of the characteristics. A lot of them, I think most of them actually, are critics of 
globalism or globalization, they are on the what Le Pen called the, the patriot end of the scale as opposed to the liberal internationalist end of the scale. And I think Trump and Johnson were very linked events. Trump was actually in Britain on the day of the Brexit referendum and said the next day, yes. you know, this shows I'm going to win. And then when Johnson was out of power because he was um, angry with May's government for not doing the kind of Brexit deal that he wanted, he started talking about there being a British deep state that wanted to frustrate Brexit. And again, that sort of classic strongman language. And his pitch in the election was, you know, Brexit has been frustrated by the deep state, um, parliament, the courts, etc. And I'm the guy to get it done. Now, I'm not saying he's a dictator in the making, but I think that mm. if you see the strongman story is partly a story against the kind of liberal... Yeah, but, 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 but Gideon, let me push yeah. back here. If the UK Parliament had blocked the verdict of the Brexit result, wouldn't that have mounted to an assault on democracy? I think if they'd followed the rules, the, the, I, I think democracy is based on the rule of law, and if they'd done it within the rule of law, then I, I don't have a problem with that. Whereas Johnson prorogued Parliament illegally, actually, as it turned out. Uh, and that, I think, is where the difference. I think it's, it's it's the respect for the law, for the institutions that mark out a kind of Democrat from somebody who is flirting with strongman rule. Now, to Johnson's credit, when the courts overruled him, he said, OK, you know, he, he restored Parliament. But uh, and I don't think, say, for example, Donald Trump would have done that. He would have said, you know, he would have denounced the courts or something like that. So, you know, I would say that Johnson has flirted with this style and is also constrained by the UK system. Um, and I think that the institutional framework in which all of these leaders find themselves is critical. And to be fair, no one has accused Boris of ordering the murder of any critics. Gideon, the book is called The Age of the Strong Man, How the Cult of the Leader Threatens Democracy Around the World. It's now out at all good bookstores across Australia. Gideon, thank you so much for being on RN again. Thank you. That was Gideon Ruckman, the global affairs columnist with the Financial Times. If you just tuned in, you're on Between the Lines on Radio National. I'm Tom Switzer. Up next, Kylie Moore-Gilbert and her 804 days in an Iranian jail. Well, my next guest has an incredible true story to tell. She's about to board a plane, but then she's taken aside and told she's under arrest. 804 days later, and Kylie Moore Gilbert is finally released from an Iranian jail. Now, what happened to her and why? That's the subject of her just-released memoir. It's called The Uncaged Sky. It's published by Ultimo Press. Dr Kylie Moore Gilbert is a scholar of Middle Eastern and Islamic studies now, at the time of her arrest and detainment in 2018, she was a lecturer at the University of Melbourne, attending an academic conference in Tehran. And to share her remarkable story, I thought we'd invite Kylie onto the program. Kylie, great to have you on Between the Lines. Thanks so much for having me, Tom. Now, tell us a bit about the people who had you locked up. Who were these captors? So the people who locked me up were called the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, or the IRGC or the Revolutionary Guards, they're referred to by many different names. In Farsi, they're called simply Sepa. And they are a kind of a state within a state in Iran. They're not 
part of the formal or official Iranian government. They're a kind of an extra governmental organization that began as a militia group, essentially, um, following the Iranian revolution in 1979, and most prominently during the Iran-Iraq war um, of the 1980s. But now they've expanded out um, to literally cover every aspect of Iranian economic and social governmental life, as well as obviously military capabilities. So they, they're huge investors, they have companies everywhere, they're involved in infrastructure projects, they're even involved in uh, the intelligence game, which I wasn't aware of at the time when I travelled to Iran. It wasn't the government who had you locked up then, it was, um, no. it was this, this mob. So I suppose that, it, that made securing a release a lot harder. Definitely, because unfortunately they are associated with the government. It's not an entirely um, non-governmental mafia gang or or group of gangsters or terrorists or something, although, of course, they could be termed all of those as well. Uh, So the Australian government had a bit of a conundrum on its hands. You know, following diplomatic protocol, it had to speak to the Iranian government, to the Iranian foreign ministry about me. But the Iranian foreign ministry has no control over what the Revolutionary Guards are doing. And in fact, they're rivals of the Revolutionary Guards. You know, the Rev Guards have a intelligence branch, which is what arrested me, which is a, a rival engaged in a turf war with the Iranian government intelligence ministry. So, and often they disagree about who and who isn't guilty or innocent, and they're fighting with one another over over control of that sphere. And that very much complicated the situation for the Australians. They had to figure out who to talk to, and once they did, how not to alienate the Iranian government in talking to their rivals. Why you? I mean, what were you accused of doing? I was eventually, um, after almost a year of being held, Uh, put on trial and charged with espionage for the quote-unquote Zionist regime. But um, most of the time I was not accused of being an Israeli spy. During my interrogations I was accused of all sorts of ludicrous things. Um, I think it was essentially a fishing expedition. But I was told I'm an Australian spy, I'm an MI6 agent, I'm a Bahraini spy even, or that I'm not a spy at all, I'm just a sort of hapless person who's been tricked by somebody else into gathering information, all sorts of ideas. I'm a fake academic. So they threw all sorts of accusations at me, but ultimately in court I was convicted um, in a very sham process of being an Israeli spy. Israeli spy. Now, in hindsight, do you think you had properly understood the risks, especially if there was a connection or association with Israel? We are, after all, talking about Iran here. Yes. Well, I am not an Israeli. I know several individuals who visited Israel and visited Iran. And I was actually, you know, invited to come to Iran by an Mm. Iranian university. I made the effort to apply for a visa in advance at the Iranian embassy in Canberra, despite us Aussies not requiring that, we can get a visa upon arrival at the airport, because I wanted to give them, you know, the benefit of the doubt and and allow them to look into my background, given it's an authoritarian regime, you assume they will. And and they approved my visa, and I saw no indication that it would be a problem. My ex-husband did have an Israeli passport, but Mm. he was born in Russia, in the Soviet Union, and migrated to Australia and now lives in Australia. So the link to Israel was there, but it's fairly tenuous. And I've travelled to all sorts of Middle Eastern countries, many of which don't have links or, or diplomatic ties to Israel, and I've never really had a problem. So I, I guess I was naive, but I also assumed, you know, that I'd be okay. 
Okay, now you spend a week under interrogation where you give up passwords to your email accounts. Now, at this point, do you still feel that your innocence can protect you and that they'll realise it's all just a big mistake? Definitely, because I had nothing to hide. Uh, you know, I resisted giving passwords to my email accounts out at the beginning. I, I gave them fake passwords. I didn't tell them all of my email accounts. But in the end, they got got into all of them. But again, I thought, well, even if they do, it's my privacy they're violating, but I have nothing to hide. Things don't go your way and you go from being Kylie Moore Gilbert, an Australian academic, to prisoner 97029. Now, Tell us about incarceration. Um, what's incarceration like in an Iranian prison? What's that like for you? It was, it's indescribable really. It's like being transported into an alternative reality or an alternative world or, I don't know, like it. time moves differently there. The passage of time is different. You lose track of who you are as a person. You become, as you said, dehumanised into a number rather than an individual with a name and a character and a personality. The dehumanising treatment, you know, at the beginning it hurts and it's tough, but you just efface yourself to the point that you become apathetic about everything and you you just stop caring. Solitary confinement too, that'd be especially tough. It's psychological torture and it's deliberately so. They know exactly what they're doing. You're thrown into solitary as an interrogation strategy to break you so that you will either make a false confession and obviously also, you know, give up any information of interest which you might have that you might be resisting telling them. I didn't have anything. I mean, I I was open with them from the beginning. I really had nothing to hide, but others perhaps do and and that's why they do it to you. It's, um, It's inhumane, it's degrading and it's really, really, really tough to go through. 800 days in an Iranian jail. Now, what contact did you have with your husband, family, the Australian Embassy? I was barred from consular assistance for maybe four four months or so, five months at the beginning until the interrogation phase had ended, until they had decided to refer my case to the revolutionary court system. And then the Australian government had been making diplomatic representations behind the scenes and in the end they had to allow them a consular visit in the prison. Uh, But I was not able to discuss my case with the the ambassador, nor receive any information, meaningful information from him about it. It was literally just proof of life and uh, am I healthy? Am I I surviving? Um, So contact was very, very limited. And I I spent long periods of time banned from consular assistance as a punishment. So I was cut off from the outside world for lengthy stretches of my incarceration. Same with family phone calls Here and there I was given family phone calls, but then at other points I was banned from all family phone calls as a punishment. So I did have very little knowledge about what was going on on the outside. Kylie Moore Gilbert is author of her just-released memoir, The Uncaged Sky. It's published by Ultimo Press. Kylie, the official advice from Canberra was to keep a low profile, let the government negotiate your release away from the glare of the spotlight but you thought a higher profile and intense media attention, that could be more fruitful. Um, That was the same strategy that Chappelle Corby used uh, during her time in Bali, different circumstances, of course, but why did you think that a higher profile and intense media attention would help you? I understood that it couldn't be detrimental to me 
that my captors weren't going to harm me as a result of it, despite the Australian government telling my family that. And I saw evidence from other prisoners because there were a lot of high-profile political prisoners in the facility where I was being held, and I heard the stories of many others. I saw evidence that it actually could help me in terms of having a spotlight on my prison conditions, my lack of medical treatment, for example, and shaming the Iranians into doing better and providing me with more humane conditions. And that's actually the effect it did have. I mean, after the 12 months or so when my situation was made public, uh, I'm not exactly sure how. It certainly wasn't my family or the Australian government that did so. Um, my conditions did improve and a greater care and attention was put on, for example, if I demanded to see a doctor, if I demanded edible food and, and not the disgusting, you know, prison fare. So it really did, you know, have that effect. But also in terms of the Australian government's policy, I think if there was pressure on DFAT, if there were people asking difficult questions of the diplomats, what are you doing to get her out? Have you been doing enough? What have you done thus far? The feeling that, that you're being watched and checked up on, I think, does push the DFAT um, bureaucrats and the politicians in Canberra, you know, including up to the level of Maurice Payne, to actually do more and show that they're doing more. So I think that that, that media attention did play a big role in getting me out when I did, you know, come out after 804 days. And had my situation remained quiet and hidden, I could still be there right now. Yes. Well, after some time in prison, you were formally charged and you appeared in court. You describe it as a show trial and you describe in your book, The Uncaged Sky, what it was like in different prisons as well as a vindictive relationship and official um, who kept prolonging your misery harrowing time for you, Kylie, but you do get released. How did that happen? My release was orchestrated by the Australian government under the stewardship of Nick Warner, who's um, a former head of the Office of National Intelligence mm -hmm. and actually a former Australian ambassador to Iran in the 1990s. He was um, made envoy, I think, by Maurice Payne's office. He travelled to Iran several times. Firstly, he negotiated the release of the two Australian backpackers, Jolly and Mark Birkin. Um, he wasn't able to get me out at that point, but he was having conversations with the Iranians about me. And in the end, they pulled off this incredible trilateral diplomatic deal involving Thailand, um, involving the release of three convicted terrorist Iranian IRGC members from a Thai prison in exchange for me. I mean, how do you feel about that swap? I have mixed feelings about that. I mean, obviously, if either of any of those individuals went on to commit any act of terrorism or any atrocity in the future, I would feel directly responsible or implicated. Well, in I was that. going to ask you, what, I mean, what are your thoughts on hostage diplomacy? Had I have known Iran was engaged in this practice to the extent that it is, I don't think I ever would have gone there. Um, I, I don't think there's enough awareness about it really. Now, perhaps more so, but um, obviously today I am very engaged in this area and I'm in touch with the family members um, of many people who are still being held in Iran and in other countries and former hostages like myself. And I do think that more needs to be done internationally to tackle state-based hostage-taking because it's a sort of a, a grey area within international law even, and each country just sort of goes it alone in terms of trying to release their citizen who might be held captive abroad. There's not really many 
countries that seek to collaborate with one another on this issue. And I think that's a real shame and more can certainly be done in this space. And finally, your friends uh, from the prison in Iran, what do you know about their situation now? I'm in touch with them, actually. Um, It depends which friend, but all of my close friends that I made in the Iranian prisons, Khachaka and Evin, I have been in touch with in some fashion, either via a family member or a friend of theirs whilst they're in prison or they're having come out of prison temporarily, permanently, um, conditionally. And, you know, the two friends I dedicate the book to, Nilufar and Sepideh, they're both still in Evin prison. They've been there for more than four years. I've spoken to them, but, you know, they're back there now and it's heartbreaking. They're innocent. And yes, there are too many yeah. stories of innocent people in Iranian prisons, unfortunately. And more power to you for raising their plight in your various interviews and publicity. Kylie, um, what now? I mean, what comes next for you? I'm not sure, actually. I I spent last year writing my book and now I'm promoting it. I haven't had a huge deal of time off, a great deal of time off since coming back from Iran. So I'm hoping just to take a few months to rest and reassess what I'm doing with my life. I, I've left academia and for the moment at least. And um, I'm, you know, I, I need, I've been through a massive upheaval in my life, my personal life as well, not just in terms of what happened to me in Iran. And I, I do need some time to process through that still. And I'm not surprised you're cynical about academia, as you put it in The Good Weekend, quote, I love teaching and I love research, but teaching isn't valued and nobody really cares about research. And you go on to say, it's all about chasing the grants, the money. Higher education is just in a terrible state. Um, And you just got out of an Iranian jail. Kylie, the book is wonderful. I encourage all our listeners to buy and read it. It's called Uncaged Sky, My 804 Days in an Iranian Prison. Kylie Moore-Gilbert, thanks so much for being on Radio National. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Well, that's it for another show and remember to hear this or past episodes including my recent exchanges with Francis Fukuyama on liberalism in crisis, Anne-Marie Brady on the Solomons as well as our various debates over the Ukraine crisis. Just go to abc.net.au slash rn and follow the prompts to Between the Lines or of course you can just go to the ABC Listen app where you can download us for free. I'm Tom Switzer, it's always great to have your company and I hope you can tune in again next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.